You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. You've just diagnosed a child with type 1 diabetes, and the parents come to you and say, Doc, what caused this? Can we prevent our other kids from getting it? And what is the future for my child? Join me today at the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. William Tamberlane. Dr. Tamberlane is Professor of Pediatrics and Chief of the Division of Pediatric Endocrinology at the Yale University School of Medicine. He is Director of the Children's Diabetes Program, Deputy Director of the Yale Center for Clinical Investigation, and is the 2006 recipient of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation Excellence in Clinical Research Award. Today we are discussing diabetes, prediction, prevention, and the future. Hi, Dr. Tamblaine, and thank you for taking the time to join us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Well, hi, Bill, and thanks for inviting me. I'd like to ask you one question. What did you win the award for? I know it's excellence in research, but you know, could you tell us a little bit about what got you the award? My research has always involved patients, so patient-oriented research. The overriding uh, objective was to establish better treatments for uh, type 1 diabetes, particularly type 1 diabetes in children. It started with what I like to affectionately call our pioneering studies with uh, insulin pump therapy. That led to our participation in the, you know, famous and well-known diabetes control and complications trial, or DCCT. We actually performed the uh, pilot study that helped uh, lead to the development of the DCCT. One of the reasons why I really enjoy clinical research is is the ability to make observations in patients and then try to figure out what's going on by doing some more sophisticated clinical studies. When we first started patients on a pump, we when they were very poorly controlled, we noticed that they would have like an insulin reaction just by bringing their blood sugar down to normal, which was not too bad because we could reassure them that they would get, their body would adapt to normal blood sugars. But what then became uh, disturbing later on was when we started using pumps at home and patients lost the sense of hypoglycemia. And that led to a whole series of experiments to understand how treatment affected the sort of threshold where patients released epinephrine and mounted an anti-insulin response. And um, we did things like showing that teenagers during puberty became insulin resistant, and that's why they needed much more insulin and and were more difficult to manage. And now we're into applying uh, continuous glucose sensors to uh, current care diabetes and and hopefully in the development of an artificial pancreas. For the parent who wants to know what caused the child's diabetes, obviously it's still somewhat of an unknown. What are the current theories? I understand there's a trigger study going on right now. Correct. So we don't know what the trigger is. Right, I guess that's where that study, the name of the trigger study comes from. But there appears to be something that causes the body to initiate an autoimmune response. So the immune system becomes aware, or at least it gets confused and thinks that the beta cells in the pancreas are either an infectious agent, uh, you know, invading cell that needs to be eliminated, and then starts mounting an attack against the insulin-producing cells of the pancreas. And that attack may take years to evolve, but they, so, so gradually the activated lymphocytes destroy the insulin-producing cells, and ultimately with type 1 diabetes, you're, you're left with uh, no insulin-producing cells dependent on insulin to survive. Do the anti-islet cell and the anti, I guess it really would be the anti-islet cell antibodies, are they direct cause and effect, or are they just sort of a marker and it's more of a cellular response of the lymphocytes? 
I think it's primarily a cellular autoimmune attack uh, with, you know, the lymphocytes attacking the beta cells. And, and actually, pathologically, if you look at a, a pancreas sections of somebody in the early stages of developing diabetes, you see it's called islet-itis, where you have a you know, invasion of lymphocytes around the islets. reason I asked about the islet cell antibodies is the allergists, of course, have developed the anti-immunoglobulin E antibody that can be used in children, especially with the steroid-dependent asthma who haven't responded to any other treatments. And I was just thinking that, you know, if it was a direct antigen antibody response, could one produce an anti-islet cell antibody? Right, right. So that, that, uh, that's a, a, you know, a very good question. So I think the other way to answer your question is to say that the current approaches to trying to, you know, prevent diabetes, say in a pre-diabetic in, in whom the immune response is activated, is directed at knocking, selectively knocking off uh, certain clones of uh, T cells, not to, you know, not to block the antibody. Are there any results you could talk about in that area? So we're very fortunate at Yale to have recently recruited Dr. Kevin Harold from Columbia. And he's one of the international experts of the, in this area. So he's been working in a number of areas, but very well known for his sort of the test, clinical testing of an anti-CD3 monoclonal antibody, which is intended to deplete the body of CD3 lymphocytes. He's published his results, his New England Journal paper and other uh, papers has shown that it is very promising as far as preserving residual beta cell function in patients with uh, new onset diabetes. Because you have a comprehensive center, in a family comes to you, their first child has been diagnosed with diabetes, what do you tell them about siblings? Do you do any kind of screening? Are there any preventive measures you might take in siblings? And if so, what are the criteria for intervening? It's a long question. It's, a, it's, a, it's not an easy one. So to start, for screening, I think that's a, you know, that's a very important question. Right. We have not routinely promoted screening just for clinical purposes of unaffected siblings of patients with type 1 diabetes. It may be helpful and reassuring if you screened and you found that, you know, the sibling was in a, uh, you know, had negative antibodies. It doesn't prove that they won't develop antibodies next year or, you know, two years later or whatever. And secondly, if it's positive, it doesn't mean you're going to get diabetes. So, so it seems to me in the absence of a therapy to try to, to intervene, then routine screening was sort of like a lose-lose situation. You know, it may be modestly reassuring, but, you know, not over-reassuring and may, may just make things worse. On the other hand, there are a number of national studies going on, such as this anti-CD3, and even a, there's an NIH-sponsored group called TrialNet, and they're even doing natural history studies. So we're, get the screening and, it would at least contribute to the idea and how well does this screening actually perform over the long range and then be potentially participate in some prevention trial. So so that's a long answer. Summary is not for routine purposes, but if it's going to contribute to being part of a prevention study or just enhance our knowledge about how well do these antibodies predict the future development, then we definitely recommend that. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. William Tamberlane. 
Director of the Division of Pediatric Endocrinology at the Yale School of Medicine. We are discussing diabetes, prediction, prevention, and the future. Are there any you know, lifestyle changes that family members could take? You know, obviously, type 2 diabetes and obesity, but and I know that alcohol, tobacco, smoke affect glucose homeostasis regulation. For the siblings, are there any, again, lifestyle changes that they could adopt that might lower the risk of developing diabetes? Not that I'm aware of. Again, to the extent there's an autoimmune process, that's what I tell our families. Because, you know, that's the first thing often a mother will think about. You know, what did I do wrong? Did I not feed the child right? Or that sort of stuff. So for the most part, for type 1, I don't think that's the issue. You mentioned this trigger study. The main question that study is trying to uh, figure out is whether the uh, use of, you know, regular cow's milk formula may have contributed increases the risk of developing type 1 diabetes. And, and that's something that obviously would be potentially something you could do to remove one of the things that could precipitate the autoimmune response. But that's highly controversial, and I'm not sure everybody really believes that's going to be successful. What does the future hold, and what do you think life will be like in 10 years for a child with diabetes? Well, I think that uh, for children with diabetes that we will continue to have better treatments, and, and hopefully at that point there will be at least a sort of like a mechanical artificial pancreas where they would have to do very little work as far as regulating their diabetes. It will still take some effort. You know, wearing an external pump or external sensors, but I think it would take a lot of the guesswork and other issues like that out of uh, taking care of diabetes. Do you want to say anything about the article that appeared in the April JAMA on autologous non-myeloablative hemopoietic stem cell transportation? It seemed very uh, aggressive, and certainly even regular immunosuppression therapy for like an eyelid transplant. You know, it's even hard to argue that for otherwise healthy children who are doing well with insulin therapy, sometimes the cure can be worse than the disease. And that's the, that's the thing you worry about with, uh, you know, that kind of, with that study. With that comment, I'd like to leave our audience with the words of Mary Tyler Moore. Take chances, make mistakes. That's how you grow. Pain nourishes your courage. You have to fail in order to practice being brave. I want to thank Dr. William Tamberlane, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing diabetes, prediction, prevention, and the future. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. I wish you good day and good health.